So when you're a Catholic, you're given last rites. Right. He was dying. My mom was asked if she would like a priest to come. She said yes. So the priest comes in, and I'm not sure what they're supposed to say. Something to the effect of, dear God in heaven, please accept this person with their name into, mm-hmm. into the gates of heaven. He kept getting my dad's name wrong. He kept calling him Jerry. <laughs> He's like, dear God, please accept Jerry into the gates of heaven. And my mom was like bowing her head. And, and my dad, his belly is shaking. He's laughing so hard during his own last rites. <laughs> So we joke that my dad got up there and there's some guy with a clipboard. I'm sorry, we're looking for Jerry. We're looking for a Jerry. (laughs) There's no Bernard here. Sorry about that. Hey, welcome to the very first episode of I'm Fine. Fine. We did it. I cannot believe this is finally happening. (laughs) We talked about this for a really long time. But I'm a procrastinator and we did not get to it till just now. So I blame Thomas for everything. And I'm okay with that. That's okay. That's our MO with each other. That's our dynamic. She's the abuser. I'm the abused. Woohoo! You're going to love it. We are so excited to have you join us. Maybe you're thinking right now, why should I be listening to these people? Who are they? Well, let's start off with who we are not. We are not licensed therapists. That is true. We are not, but we are friends. Uh, I love that we say, but we are friends as if that's sort of counter to therapists. Right, exactly. You're not my therapist, but you're my friend. Which means (laughs) you're a therapist I don't pay. (laughs) You know what? That's true. Yeah. Start charging you. Yeah. Make some serious money. We've been friends for a long time and we've helped each other through our own grief and our own loss. And as the years have gone by, we started to get really curious about grief and the different kinds of grief, the universality of grief. The year we've had with the pandemic and, you know, I was in the thick of trying to deal with my grief and it just really put into perspective how much as a society we avoid Mm -hmm. grief and avoid talking about it. And we just kind of wanted to create, hopefully, a community that people can talk openly about it and see that their experience isn't exclusive to just them, that we all go through these things. There's a commonality of grief, no matter what has caused the grief, there's a commonality of how we deal with it. Unfortunately, one of those common aspects is not talking about it. So then people tend to think that they're different or unique in the way that they're held by their grief or processing their grief. And so we wanted to create a community that kind of said, hey, this is the same for everybody and you're not going through it alone. We're going to have each week a different guest talk about their story of grief and their loss. And we wanted to say that we don't know what their story is or what it will be until they start it. So as you're hearing it for the first time, so are we. Today, though, is an exception because I'm going to talk about me. Her favorite <laughs> So happy. Finally, a platform for me. We thought we couldn't ask people to come on the show and talk about their grief without us first being vulnerable with our own grief. And that's where we're going to start it off. Uh, Our goal today is to kind of hear the story and I'm going to 
try to pretend I've never heard any of it. And uh, some things you probably have not. Through. Yeah, I'm excited, actually, in a weird. I'm excited to hear about how everyone you love die. It's hilarious. Good stuff. <laughs> it's so interesting because you live with something for so long. And you're like, sure, I can talk about it. No problem. And then the day arrives. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, I yeah. can't do this. Yeah. I don't even know where to start. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how are you? How was your week? Um. My week's been okay. Um, this is going to be super gripey, but I have a bad back right now and it's been debilitating. I can't move very well. I make mm -hmm. everybody around me pay for it and everything's grouchy and I'm not really listening. Your health, your physical health, when you're in pain, and even if it's just temporary pain, which mm -hmm. I know mine is, it just takes over all your thoughts. Oh yeah. It's in control of everything. Yeah. It's in, oh before I had my back surgery. No, you just have to up everything. I had back surgery. Oh. Well, oh. <laughs> your pathetic little back ache. When you have two discs blow up in your back, then you can get right. back to me, Jennifer. Um, <laughs> but no, right before it is, it's exhausting. And of course, I teach indoor cycling, which is such a quintessential actor thing to say. I'm an actor and I teach fitness. <laughs> and so I had to teach my on friend, Saturday. My walking cliche, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> And then I ended up feeling great after the class because all my muscles were warmed up. But of course, later it was terrible. And Jane and I were home alone this weekend. Pete went up to see his parents and we went to the mall and we were trying, I was trying to do fun things, but I was a mess the whole time. I'm like, oh, thank goodness for the masks because I'm talking to myself and I'm like, I want to go home. I just want to go home. And that's all I kept saying over and over again because I was so much pain. I would break out in a low grade sweat. Mm. at all times because it mm. hurts so bad you're just like bracing so much it's like yeah um so how have you been how was your week uh it was okay it was pre relatively productive and uh, i redid my patio that was my goal this week yeah i don't know you know with this pandemic i feel like i do things i obviously like keep my days busy but then when somebody says what have you been up to or how's your week i'm always like i don't know <laughs> And then I end up saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. How's your pandemic going for you? Fine. Fine. Everything's fine. Um, and re-entering society has been challenging. I know that we've talked about this where I'll go out and run an errand and they're very menial tasks like mm -hmm. at the post office, getting gas. And I come home and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. I need to go to bed. I'm so yep. tired. My brain has not been ready. Mm -hmm. My body is reacting to the release of trauma, I think. Mm -hmm. I think we've had some trauma and my body's been holding on to a lot of stuff. It should clue us in to how we were functioning under too high of a level of stress. Like we fill our days and we're, we're going at a pace that maybe our bodies aren't meant to do. And so the pandemic kind of made us slow down a right. little bit. We're either going to have to take a step back and reevaluate, or we're going to have to build a tolerance back up. I was naive and thinking that I could just sort of go back into it. Mm -hmm. And I was naive and thinking that I would even want to go back into it because I'm not sure that I really do. It's hard. Yeah, yeah it is. So let's take our mind off of that difficult thing and tell the easy story of the death of your father. So easy. Just comes right out of me. No problem. It's like singing a song. <laughs> so great. Well, I had older parents, what are considered older parents. Um, even though by today's standards, I think it's pretty 
normal. My dad was 45 when I was born. My mother was a month shy of 40. Back in the 70s and 80s, when you would tell your friends like your mother was 55 years old, and they're like, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. she'll be dead soon. And so I was always afraid of my parents dying. Try being in the South when everybody's parents are like a senior and you're- Yeah. And that's a common mountain experience too. When I was in my early 20s, I started to become more frightened about my father dying. It wasn't consuming my thoughts, but it was definitely there. He developed a disease when I was around 23, and it was called myelodysplastic anemia. It's an autoimmune disease. You get very tired, you bruise easily, you start getting blood transfusions, and it can lead to infection. Because it's a blood disease, it almost is like AIDS, where it's you have the virus, but you mm-hmm. die of like pneumonia yeah, mm-hmm. or complications, right? He died of what's called peritonitis, which is like a poisoning of the stomach in a way. It's like a bacterial infection in your abdomen, which my mother had when I was three years old and almost died of. Oh, wow. And so my dad's like, I'll do it. You couldn't do it. I'll do it. Die? Die. I'll like, take uh- I know how to die from this. You didn't do it right. I'll do it right. I'll show you how to finish the job. Now, before we go too far, tell us how your your parents met. Okay. I come from an Irish family. My dad's parents were Irish immigrants. They came through Ellis Island. They did the whole, yeah, that American dream thing. And they met in Philadelphia. So they didn't meet in Ireland and come over together. They came over as like teenagers. My dad's dad was like 19 and my mom's, my dad's mom was 18, something like that. They were also born in the 1800s. My grandparents, people are like, oh, your great grandparents. I'm like, no, my grandparents. My oh, wow. yeah. grandfather was born in 1884 and my grandmother was born in 1888. So yeah, pretty, pretty wow. crazy. Yeah, I know. Generationally, it's really interesting. Yeah. Irish families have a lot of kids in them and they're Irish Catholics on the East coast. I have like 35 first cousins. There's a lot of us. We like to breed. We love to breed. It's very common in Irish families for one of the siblings or two of them to become a nun or a priest. And so my father was a Jesuit. You know, there's all these different orders and his was the Society of Jesus. And they're pretty hardcore. They are policymakers. They're, they're very political. The Jesuits were referred to as God's Marines because St. Ignatius, who had started the order, had been in the military. Um, they're called Soldiers of Christ. God's soldiers, and my favorite, the company. Here's a good way to describe the Jesuits. You know who hated the Jesuits? Hitler. Mm. Hated them. In fact, many of them uh, were transported to concentration camps, and about 130 of them died in Dachau. Oh, wow. Yeah, because they were free society, baby, free education, all that stuff. He didn't want that. Yuck. Socialist. Yeah. (laughs) Dirty word. He became one and his brother was also one. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he had an older brother who was one as well. He was one of eight kids. My father was the youngest. My mother had been a nun with the Sacred Heart Order. Nuns were also called Brides of Christ. Want to get that out? I said, so all of these different orders, they sort of cater to a certain part of society, like to the poor, to, you know, I don't know. She goes, well, we cater to the rich. Sorry, but that's how it was. So... (laughs) Like, oh, I guess they need it too. Um, So she knew like the Kennedys. I mean, she wasn't friends with them, but she had taught Robert Kennedy's one of his kids. Oh, he would come to the school and they played softball. My mother was very athletic. 
she would be at bat and he would be catching and he's like, you're too tall for me, sister. Cause my mother was five foot 11. So <laughs> it was this, oh, I don't feel like I'm doing very well with this. No, it's great. So they met at a school called Stone Ridge School of the Sacred Heart, where my mother was a teacher. We didn't know this until after she died. I don't know why she didn't tell us this, but she wasn't just Sister Catherine. My mother's name was Catherine. She became a mother. She was Mother Catherine. Oh, wow. My dad had been at the school because he would go on almost like on tours to different Catholic schools and universities mm -hmm. in the United States and speak. He was a very gifted orator. I am so nervous. It's really weird. It's like I'm opening a door. Because well, they're um, watching you. They're watching me. Because yeah. I want to get it right, too. I feel like to honor them. My mom, at the time that they met, had been going through a lot. She was very unhappy. She was very depressed. My dad came to the school, and, and he was giving a speech on the spirit world and the real world that we all see and how they are interconnected. And she was very moved and inspired by what he was saying. And she sent him a note and asked him if she could speak with him. And I guess he got a note back to her and said no, <laughs> because he was leaving the next morning and there wasn't going to be any time. So she forgot about it, I guess, or he returned in three and a half months and remembered her and asked her if she would still like to speak with him. And this is according to my mom, this story. Mm -hmm. so my mom goes to see him and she says that the first time she actually sees him outside of speaking, he's eating a big bowl of raw onions. My dad loved raw onions and everything really, really hot. Okay. <laughs> and she went through the kitchen and there he was eating onions and they went somewhere to talk and she broke down. She cried a lot, talked about how she wasn't sure that she had made the right choice in her life and that she had loved Jesus and she loved the calling that she thought she had, but something was wrong. Something wasn't right. My dad. My mom said that my dad said, this doesn't land as well as it used to, because now I'm like, oh, he said, sister, you need a man. <laughs> and I'm just the one to do it. I, I, and when I was a kid, I was like, oh, wow. But now I'm like, what? That's stupid. Maybe that's not what you needed. That's not going to solve all of the problems. No, yeah. you don't need a man. You need to get the hell out of there. That's what you need to do. You know, I don't think at the time he was thinking that it was him. I think he was genuinely counseling her. But apparently he was also going through a lot of questioning uh, the authority that the church had over his life. And this was the time that there was something going on called Vatican II, which is a very big event in the Catholic Church. It is considered as big as Luther putting the 95 Thesis on Worms Cathedral, which was 500 years before. Very big deal. Vatican II became, the way that my mom and dad used to put it, was that it was a realization that people could communicate with God directly and did not need a mediator like a priest or a nun. And priests and nuns started to feel displaced. Mm -hmm. So many of them left. It's not uncommon that so many left. We used to call it the mass exodus of Vatican II. But it's very uncommon for them to marry each other. So my mom and my dad started to see each other uh, after that initial meeting. My mom said that it's okay. very sound of music. So she has her habit on, which is the attire that nuns wear. Uh -huh. And underneath is civilian clothing, a nice dress. Garters and garters and nothing else. Um, boas, you know, <laughs> your typical under the habit clothes. I'm straight to hell for this. Oh. <laughs> uh, also, I just want to say you're like, 
it's very the sound of music. And the whole time I'm thinking, isn't this the plot to the Thornbirds? Like that too. <laughs> so she said that she would go out the gates of the school and there was a graveyard either down the street or near the school. And she would take off her habit behind a big tombstone and there her dress would be underneath and she would go meet him on the road. And he had an MG and they would go driving together and they fell in love because they were in their late thirties. And my dad was already in his forties. They had some decisions to make. The (laughs) clock is ticking. So They decided to leave their orders. My mother did not hesitate as much as my father did. My mom was ready to go. It was not easy. She had to write a letter to her father. Um, I think that that was a very difficult part for them was telling their families because there's so much pride when you have a son or a daughter that's a nun or a priest. And a lot of times people join because they want to impress their parents. Mm -hmm. And my mom told me through her life, she's like, I did it for my father. It was always supposed to be her older sister who was supposed to join, but her older sister had fallen in love early. That wasn't happening. So the family reacted in different ways. My dad's family probably was not happy, but his oldest brother, my uncle John, stood for him at the wedding. And my mom, her older sister, stood for her at the wedding and told her, I don't care if you're marrying a blue or red or green guy, um, I'll be there for you. And that's one of the reasons that we always adored her so much. Her parents went, but refused to walk her down the aisle. It was a very big deal. They decided to leave the East Coast. And my dad, being a PhD, was going to go into teaching. So he put in applications all over the United States. And the first place to get back to him was Fresno State University in California. And he accepted and taught there for 30 years. Oh, wow. Uh, taught political science. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. I think I he, he made taught, it. To... But I didn't realize he taught at Fresno State. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I went there. So they found a place in Oakhurst, which is an hour north and a little house. That's where my brother and I were raised. Okay. That's how they met. Okay. You were at your dad's illness. Right. He was just getting worse and worse. And I would see him and he looked terrible. I hadn't gotten married yet. Pete and I moved down to LA and then six months later we got married, but we got married up in my hometown because we hadn't really established ourselves here and it was expensive to get married here. And I also needed to be somewhere that was close to my father so that he wouldn't have to travel. One of the reasons that I think we got married as quickly as we did is because I knew he was dying. At our wedding, this was, my father was just magnificent at taking the spotlight unbelievably talented at that. He was sitting in a wheelchair. He stood up, put his cane down and walked me down the aisle. And everybody was bawling because it had nothing to do with me. (laughs) And he was wearing a white dress. Oh, he he just just took took that dress off me and was like, give me that veil. You don't deserve this. (laughs) I know what I'm doing. (laughs) And everybody came up to me. I was like, when your dad put down that cane, I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> he knew what to do. <laughs> it was a fascinating wedding uh, because I would look out. I looked at my mom. My dad was a mess. He was crying so much. And my mom was just stone face the whole time. 
And I know looking back, it's because she was going through so much Mm -hmm. and she was in high gear all the time Mm -hmm. taking care of him. Also, she was providing care for her 95-year-old, no, 97-year-old mother who lived next door to us for 25 years. So she was just who she was, was not relevant for a good three years. And then he died six months after we got married. Mm -hmm. So it was just this bam, 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 a lot of stuff happening in one year. Every time I would see him, he was so exhausted Mm -hmm. and his body was just getting smaller. It was like he was disappearing. My mom called me. I was working as that receptionist. And you know, you hear your parents' voice and it just sounds so different. And I answered um, for the company and then I just hear her go, Jen. And I went, oh my God. And she goes, you need to come home. And I said, is he dead? And she said, no, but he's going to die. And I said, Okay. And I just hung up. I didn't even say anything to her. I was like, I didn't know the situation. I didn't know anything. I just fell apart. And Pete was working with me at the same time at at that company. And we went home. My brother was living in Russia. So he was just getting various phone calls. And also it was like the middle of the night Mm -hmm. when this was happening. So they weren't really available. So finally we were able to get in touch with him and he would just get these various calls. It would be from him talking to my dad to my brother feeling like, okay, that was okay. It wasn't so bad. My dad had been hospitalized before. Maybe this is just another situation. Any that maybe my mom and I were being overly dramatic about like, no, this is it. And then the next call would be that he was barely able to talk. And then it was um, me telling him he's gone. So the progression for him must've been really hard. You know, I think there's a certain amount of denial that happens there too. We want to believe that there's hope. And I think that's one thing that is makes loss and grief so hard is because the hope is gone at that point. It's done. You're never prepared. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter how long you know or how how sudden it is or you're never prepared. No. And I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. So nobody my age was really losing their parents Did you say from childhood. 27? 20... A week after I turned 27. Got it. And that's the last time that I saw him outside of a hospital was outside the house for my birthday. I went up for my birthday mm-hmm. and he just did not look well. And I was trying to be funny and trying to tease him a little bit, but he just looked like he knew it was happening. Um, my mom said he would stand in the backyard and just sort of like hold his hands up to just like try to accept what was happening. So I won't go into the specifics of his death because I find that to be mine, (laughs) but it was pretty amazing. Actually, my cousins were there, his nephew, um, who's my first cousin, but he's almost like an uncle because he's older than I am by a good like 30 years. They were very close. So they were there and uh, my husband was there and then he was gone and we drove home. I just remember this feeling of the sound of like an animal just kept coming out because it was like, I didn't know what to do. My mom was just like all business. And it was the beginning of this really surprising been out from each other. I really thought that we would all be closer, that we would do this together. And we could not have been further apart. My mom and I, that day that he died, we got home didn't skip a beat. We started telling people. We called family. That was very weird and very hard because people just react so differently. I found that to be one of the hardest things because yeah. people want to know the details and you 
are still in it. You've not had the time to, you have no perspective. You're still, it's still full on. You're reliving it. At least for me, I felt like I was reliving uh, my mother's death over and over with each phone call that I made. Yeah. And it's, it's like a business call. It's really weird, but the, the comedy really started coming in pretty soon after <laughs> because my grandmother who lived next door to us, your mom's mother, my mom's mom was very, very deaf, um, not born deaf, not a lifelong deafness, but refused to wear a hearing aid when she really needed one. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to shout at the top of your lungs. We got to her house and she was laying in her bed and she had, had been having some eye issues over the last few days and was obsessing over it. We go in and we sit on either side of her. And I remember I was so raw. I wouldn't say that my grandmother was an affectionate person. I have a lot of respect now, all these years later, because she wore a dress every single day of her life. She wore heels every day. She got her hair done every week. Mm -hmm. She always got up and got it done until the day she died. But part of me in that moment wanted so badly for her to look at me and go, oh, my goodness. But she hated my father <laughs> and my father hated her. I think they were a lot alike in a way. Uh -huh. My dad's name was Bernard. My mom called him Bernard and she'd go, Graham, Bernard's dead. What? Bernard's dead. What? For like four or five times. And then me going, dad's dead at the top of my lungs. And I always joked, if you're ever in the denial phase, that'll snap you out of it. <laughs> And she finally hears it and goes, oh, my eye. <laughs> and my mom just goes, damn it. Like she was sort of hoping too that there was going to be a moment of, oh, I'm so sorry, darling. Yeah. And I just went, Graham, bad timing, bad timing. <laughs> so then we have to start to prepare for the burial. We go to the funeral home and they're always very nice, very nice people. They're the <laughs> nicest vultures you will ever meet. That's what it feels like. And something happens to me when people are too tender with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I start to like reject it, mm. start to get itchy. We're sitting there and they always have this way of talking. And he says, is there anything that you would like to put in the coffin with your father? And my mom looks at me and she goes, I can't think of anything. And I said, yeah, my grandmother. <laughs> and my mom goes, Jeff. and the guy's like, oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I assume she's passed on as well. I went, no, she's alive. <laughs> I want her in there. <laughs> no, <laughs> He does his best. So we pick something out that we think he would like. Um, <laughs> we pick out a coffin that we think he would like. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I remember going, I, he would never pick out that, that silver coffin. Let's go with the wood. Let's go with that wood tone. Cause that it just, it says more. Yeah. More it feels more like wood. he's so connected to this mm -hmm. part of the Sierra Nevadas. Let's mm -hmm. pick Oak. I remember I went and got my hair cut, which was kind of a weird thing to do. But now I look back, I needed something to feel like a renewal in some way. A normalcy. You needed to feel normal. Right. As well, I think. So I got this new outfit and I had a new haircut that looked, made me look like a child, 
it was a weird, like little Prince Valiant haircut that I had when I was like in the third grade. Uh-huh, uh-huh. My dad had a friend who was also an ex-Jesuit. My dad didn't have a lot of friends, but when he did, they were always Jesuits. Yes. Because, you know, you can't suffer fools very well when you're that smart, when you're that educated, and when you when you just see things so differently. He came from the Philippines to do the service for my dad, which was really special because it was special to have somebody who really knew him do the service. I would tease my mom about him a little bit because he lived in the Philippines and was taken care of by Filipino ladies. I was like, these guys don't know how to take care of themselves. They always need a woman to put a burrito in a microwave for them. It's just so crazy. Okay, side note here. I was in the shower the other day. (laughs) I already like where this is going. The story starts out so great. I was in the shower the other day, you know, thinking the deep thoughts you think as you're washing your hair. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I thought, did men just figure out how to wash finally? (laughs) When I was in school... All the daytime TV commercials talked about ring around the collar. Yeah, I remember that. There seemed to be such an epidemic at that time. I was very worried about it. And (laughs) and now nobody talks about it. So I think, you know, we as men finally figured out how to wash our necks. Because isn't that what it was? Yeah, because a man's sweat became a woman's problem. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're not going to embarrass me at work. I can't go to work like this. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about my body sweat? Well, seriously, I put a ring on your finger. It's the least you could do. (laughs) I provide all of this. You think your meatloaf justifies this? You think that just appears on the table? No, you make it because I tell you to. That's (laughs) what this is. (laughs) Yeah, that was a big deal. And when one, one of his brothers came to live with us, who is the single most horrible relative I've ever had. Oh God! And he made my mom starch his clothes and then he would get really upset if it wasn't done right. It was, a, I'm telling you, they came from like a time. My dad was born in 1928. So he was born a year before the depression. Mm-hmm. So it was just a different time, yeah. different time. And there was a lot of that growing up. And so now looking into the past and like my own feminism and how I want to raise my daughter and how my husband is, it's like, Wow. In comparison, my mom had to put up with a lot. My dad had to hear from me when we got old, when I got older. And I was like, what? This is, this isn't right. He was a product of his time. He was a product of his time. He was somebody that if he had lived longer, definitely would have been much more available and open because I think he was naturally that way. And he and I probably would have had a much more loving, honest beautiful relationship if he had lived. We were on our way there, but it never happened. And I was still young and just barely getting started. So people know he has died. The date is set. And my mom has a friend from Kentucky who lives down the street named Corky. (laughs) Corky. And Corky is very upset about the date of the funeral. My mother's name was Catherine, but she went by Cappy, C-A-P-P-Y. And that's because Everybody called her Kathy when she was a child and she couldn't say the TH. So she said Kathy and it stuck. Okay. Porky called and said, Kathy, you didn't have the funeral on that day. That's the day of my party. Oh my God. And my mom, I can hear on the phone going, okay, I'll change it. Corky. <gasps> yeah. And I grabbed the phone. I'm like, Corky, this is my father's funeral. And if you can't make the funeral, that's fine. But we really don't care about your party. 
So I have friends that have to go to my dad's funeral and then go to the party. I would have crashed it and turned it into a wake. I'd have been like, thank you so much, Corky, for having this reception. Where is the casserole? (laughs) Those are the kinds of things that started coming out. So the priest comes up from the Philippines. I had already been through the, the beautiful trauma is what I will call it of my watching my father pass having to now go to the wake, well, the memorial service, the Irish do a lot of wakes, but nobody really does those anymore. And what they were was the body was in the room on ice and people would just be getting drunk around the body and very common long ago. doesn't really happen anymore. I was so afraid to go into this room to see his body. I remember standing at the door. My brother went in, my mom went in, no one was there yet except us. And this man who was my dad's friend sensed that I had stopped And he turns around and he puts his hand out and he looks at me and he goes, you can do this. It's okay. And I went in and I just remember, I just had so much terror. I'll never forget that. And there he was with this like pink curtains all around, which was just, everything was just opposite of my dad. My dad's hair was always kind of unruly. He never used product. His hair was combed down with so much product. And there was this little kid who lived upstairs with his parents. They ran the funeral home. He's running around and he looks at me and he goes, is that your dad? And I said, yeah, that's my dad. And he goes, he looks like a president. And I thought, that's awesome. I was so grateful to that kid. He shook me out of that moment. And I was able to look at him and go, yeah, he does look like a president. You're right. So my brother, that was tough. He had not seen him. And the last time that they saw each other, they had argued. So he, he's been through a lot. So he walked out and needed some time on his own and people start coming in. I had a cousin come in from Philadelphia. It was like, really, you know, when people come, the people that show up, it's very emotional. People fly from far away to be there for you and to say goodbye. So people got up and my father, this is all going to come out wrong because of the history with priests in the Catholic church. Right. He inspired as most priests do men because it's this intellectual worldview. And because of it being sort of like a yentl thing where the women were not really encouraged or were not allowed, it's like a another tier, you know, the glass ceiling kind of thing, but in religion and theology and philosophy. We still see that today, don't we? Yes. Yes, absolutely. There are people with religion that are really against that education. They're, mm-hmm. they're against that being exposed to the world because then you may start to question things. Right. And especially if you're a woman, you might start to, you know, have those dangerous thoughts of, well, why do I need to get married? Yeah. And why do I need to be of service to this particular mm-hmm. system? And religion is just like any other system. The system was that the men were the ones that were able to continue up that ladder. So most of the people who spoke were men. The only woman who spoke was me. I don't think my mother was able. Everyone had gotten up there and talked about how inspiring he was. And when I got up there, I hadn't prepared anything, which I probably should have. And I said, while he was inspiring the men, he was infuriating me. Oh, wow. And the thing that I wanted to convey was that he was actually a very sweet person. Mm -hmm. He loved animals more than people, but I understand that. Yeah, I get that. And the night before he died, the animals had all gathered around him like they knew, which was weird because they never did that. And there was a man who came up to me when the wake was over 
And he said, I really loved what you said that he had infuriated you. I thought that was very honest. I think we need more honesty, things like this. Mm -hmm. And so I always appreciated that. There was a man who was there who had been my father's office mate for many years, was also a political science professor. He was from another country and he was hilarious. My dad and he used to laugh constantly. I could hear them down the hallway in the political science building screaming, laughing. He had a very thick accent. We had been around him my whole life, so we had always been able to understand him, mm -hmm. but it was very hard for other people. And when you're in a mountain town where you're not really hearing a lot of accents, right? and he gets in there and he says, all we hear is this. We hear words, can't understand them. We hear him say, clear as a bell, communist. <laughs> and then he'd talk a little more, couldn't understand him. <laughs> Communist. <laughs> and then Russian girl, very beautiful. Oh, Communist. Oh, my God. My brother and I just sort of do this side eye to each other. We're like, oh, my gosh, we're going to have to do some damage control. So when the wake is over and I'm hugging people, my brother's hugging people, and we're both saying, thank you so much for coming. Our father was not a communist. Thank you so much for coming. My dad was not having an affair with a beautiful Russian girl who was a communist. Thanks for coming. <laughs> so the day of the funeral, it's at the Catholic church, which is pretty interesting because my dad and mom had left the church. Mm -hmm. So we were going to have it at a Catholic church, a Catholic mass for people who had been a nun and a priest. Yeah. But California is a little bit more laid back right. than the East Coast. I don't remember who did the eulogy. Maybe it was his friend who had also given the service at the funeral. And we were leaving and the woman who was playing the organ started playing Danny Boy, which is like Irish people kryptonite. Yeah, yeah. And I just fell apart. The priest, he's throwing holy water on the casket as you walk out. That's what you do. And you do the ashes to ashes kind of thing. I thought you were going to say, and the priest started throwing holy water on me. Like, <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. No, that's what I was about to say. Oh, he did do that. <laughs> Sorry, I took, I took that away. He's flicking it. So he flicks it on the casket and then he starts flicking me. And I look up, he's laughing because he's trying to yeah, help me. To help you, yeah. Because I was a disaster. So we get out of there. And I always had this vision that you take a line of cars through the town to the cemetery. That's what I thought was supposed to happen. And I will admit, I was kind of looking forward to it because I always wanted to be at the front of the line at one of these things. So here was my shining moment. Right. We get to the parking lot. Nobody has left yet. People are still standing around, hugging, talking. The hearse peels out of the parking lot with my father in the back to the point where we could see the casket shimmy oh, God. in the window. And my brother goes, oh my God, we gotta go, we gotta go. So me, my mom, my brother, we get in the car, my husband is driving and it's raining. First of all, my parents were both buried in the pouring rain. We take off, no one comes behind us because it happens so fast. Pete has to cut through a parking lot it has like standing water in it uh -huh. and we hydroplane oh, God. and it's just and my brother's like Pete you gotta go we really we faster faster we're chasing the hearse through the town <laughs> we get to the cemetery and they're like pulling him out like they had somewhere to be they had something to do yeah oh my gosh they had to go to Corky's party I guess 
So they're pulling out the <laughs> casket. <laughs> like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. So people start arriving, but the only people who arrive are the people who are from the town because they know where the cemetery is. And the cemetery mm-hmm. happens to be in the middle of town. You know, it's easy to pass by it, but people had been looking for it. I had friends tell me later, like, we wanted to go, but we didn't know where everybody went. The burial doesn't happen because the casket stays up. I always thought it goes down, Mm -hmm. but for my dad's funeral, we just left. And I think maybe my mother had said she didn't want to see it go down. I'm not sure. So we left. My friend whose mother and grandmother were at the time uh, interned there with their ashes had decided to stay around a little while after my dad's service and go and visit those particular memorials. And she told me very casually in passing when I talked to her a week later, she said, yeah, I saw them put your dad down and I saw them, you know, take the tractor with the dirt. And I just was shocked. It's a, it was shocking. Not that she told me that, but the vision of it. Mm-hmm. It was like all of these little milestones of pain and realization. The tombstone went in a year later. It took a long time. My mom called me crying. Yeah. It was just this finality of things that is very hard to place in your body. So the after all of it, people started leaving. I know you probably remember this and people out there remember this kind of thing is that there's a lot of people around. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of food around. There's a lot of people coming and going. And so it feels busy. There's feels like action. And when it's all over, everyone leaves. And you crash. And you crash. And it's just you. It was becoming clear that me and my mom and my brother were not going to grieve together. And it was actually pretty devastating. You know, if I could throw something in on that, because I think that's more common than than not. I had a lot of issues because I felt like my brother was the only person in the world that was going through the exact same thing as I was, and we couldn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. But it's almost like a magnet where if you're both going through the exact same thing, you know, you're both charged the same way. And when you put those together, they repel as opposed right. to pulling each other in. Yeah. I took it upon myself to hurt myself. Basically, I caved in on myself, very depressed. And the depression became clinical. In the years following, I put on an enormous amount of weight. My relationship with my dad was strained. And when he died, I went through a massive amount of anger. So, so, so much anger. I was angry with myself. I was angry with him. I was angry probably that he died, which I didn't know at that time that you could be angry with somebody for dying. Mm-hmm. It started this long process of being really angry with him for the father that I felt that he needed to be, that he should have been. Mm-hmm. Stuff that was sort of like the norm in our family became something that I thought a lot about and was really mad about. Like he was, he would do silent treatments for days where he pretended like we didn't Mm. exist. I was furious about that. And I was furious that it was allowed. And so I grieved him and I was angry with him for a really long time. And it was exhausting. And so finally, after quite a long time I sought treatment and got on medication. And I, I think something that I discovered as I was getting better was that I couldn't remember a time in my life that I wasn't depressed up until that point. Yeah. So basically I had been depressed as a child, which I found, I was very sad 
for like my younger self realizing that. And when he died, it was like this geyser of accumulated depression and anger and sadness and sorrow for so many things finally found that point where it could just burst. And his death was essentially the catalyst for that. And so I started to feel better. It became a much more manageable life. Mm -hmm. And my life was moving in a direction that I really wanted it to be in. I'd had a, a kid, Jane, who is, I love her so much. She is such a part of me. And I love being a mom. I love it. And I didn't actually think that I would be very good at it. And I'm actually really good at it. You're very good at it. Thank you. And she and I are just so connected. And it's just the best. It's the best. And so this little family that I have with Pete and Jane, and it's just been wonderful. And 15 years after my dad died, my mom died. And my mom, my relationship with my mom was really great. It was beautiful. It was a very complete relationship. It was very full, very rich. And that wasn't the same that it was with my dad. But I was also a middle-aged woman when my mother died. And so I'd had an opportunity to talk to her in ways that I didn't have the opportunity to talk with for my dad. You and I talk about like what surprises us in grief. The thing that surprised me when she died was that I regrieved him. And I regrieved him in a much gentler way, a kinder way. Mm -hmm. I was able to talk about my to my brother stories about him. We could laugh. And it was really cool. That was really great and still is. And when somebody dies and you say, I wish they were here. And it sounds so, you know, futile, I guess is the word. But I really, I wish that he was alive. I really wish he was alive because then I could be his friend and I wouldn't be afraid to talk to him and I wouldn't be afraid to ask him questions because I had avoided my father much of my young life, my childhood, my teenage years. I mean, I was really afraid of him and I stayed away from him. And so he didn't share a lot about his life with me and I never asked. And so he told me a story once and I never forgot it because of the rarity in which we shared things like that. My dad had had a brother who died in World War II. He died at the Battle of Monte Cassino in Italy. And my dad was only 16 when his brother had died. And he's telling me this story about how like, they brought a telegram to the door. They didn't bring a priest because there were so many young men dying. That they would just send a telegram and it said, Clifford died. Battle of Monte Cassino and my grandmother, his mother gets it and just like drops to her knees at the door. And my dad is alone with her in the house. There's no one else there. And how in that moment, their whole lives changed. Mm -hmm. When he was telling me this story, I remember thinking how sad I was for him. I felt very, very sad for him. And then when I got older and started to learn about generational grief, I realized that that story, that that grief, that that trauma that they went through, that he went through because they lost a son, they lost a brother, that it was in me too, that it was raising me too. And I really wish I could talk to him about that. I really do.
Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode of I'm Fine. Please follow or subscribe and rate us wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram at imfine.podcast. And if you have a story to share or a topic you'd like to hear covered, please email us at the I'm Fine Podcast at gmail.com.